0: Uh, Possible, we've been in the first century up to now, I think, and um, it seems like it's right now. I feel like we're having a little bit of a hard time getting out of the first century. I thought it was going to go a little faster than this. And last, our last lesson on Clement was um, I think I told you we're now getting into the second century, and Clement actually was kind of at the end of the first century, he might have been right at the beginning, at least his letter might have been at the beginning of the second century, but it's still right there, and today. We're going to look at another writing that um, is, uh, might be as early as late-mid 1st century, but it could also be later. So it may still be in the 1st century, for, for all I know, but I really think this lesson will probably be the absolute last lesson we'll do in the 1st century, and then next week we'll actually really move out of it and into the 2nd century. So right. we, we are going to get there. Um, let's just go ahead Let me take a moment and let's pray for this morning's lesson, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Dear Father, we are here together, to fellowship, fellowshipping, uh, studying, uh, learning your word, learning your will, seeking your will, Father. And God, we just thank you for the fact that you have given us your word. You've given us a testimony written that's solid, that's that we can confidently trust in. You've also given us faithful men and women all throughout history that have repeatedly pointed us to your word. And so, Father, as we study this morning, I pray that you would uh, make our hearts sensitive. Let us hear and understand. Um, and uh, cause it to enter into us and to change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, this week, and we're still trying to get into the second century, uh, one of the things I wanted to start out doing this morning is kind of just to introduce you to a second century church that I personally have had the privilege of being acquainted with, and some of the pictures you see right up here um, is what I would consider, in many analogous ways, kind of like a second century church. Um, I befriended this people. I'm going to call them the Sandal people. Um, I prefend, started to befriend them, get to know them during some of my travels abroad in the past, and. Um, uh, learned a lot of things about them, got to know videos, and made some really good friends among, among them. But why do I consider them like a second-century church? Well, if you uh, know the story, uh, the Sandal people, at the beginning of the 20th century, had never heard the gospel before. They had never come in contact with the Bible, or with God, or had never heard of the name of Jesus. And at about that time, a missionary, I'm going to call him Preacher Jim, Took the gospel to them, and he was soon followed by a good handful of others as well. Um, other good missionaries who likewise went to this people group and shared the gospel. The results of all of this work, a few decades that they were there, I believe, um, was that at the beginning of this century, uh, the Sandal people uh, were about half of the Sandal people in total, so they're a pretty big group. Were professing the Christian faith, so it's a very significant. Um, evangelical work, very significant mission, and that's about the time that I got to know him. it. Was in the beginning of the 21st century when I was uh, up in that area. Uh, when I uh, basically the way it happened was pretty simple, pretty natural. I was in the city, got to know one friend, then got to know another friend, and um, gradually, eventually, somebody invited me to his <laughs> village. Got to know him, his, his family better. Got to know the village. Uh, and then after that, I went on to other villages, met people there, um, and my acquaintance just kind of grew. And I was really excited because I had read a little bit about their story. I knew about their background, and I was really excited to know, you know, decades later, to kind of see where they were and what was going on. Um, and it was it was a very exciting time, but pretty early on in my acquaintance with these people. My excitement kind of turned to a little bit of discouragement and even a bit of alarm. And that is because as I became more acquainted with them and we had deeper conversations, I began to realize that a lot of my friends who were Christians really didn't know the gospel. Um, They they had a lot of forms. Um, They were, for one thing, they were very strongly moralistic and their morals were all very good. you know, they knew what the ways that Christians should live and that they shouldn't live. They, they were also a little bit legalistic, too, a little bit traditional. I mean, um, they, they put a big emphasis on church attendance, uh, not working on Sundays and things like that. Um, maybe over too much emphasis on church attendance. But they didn't understand the heart of the gospel. They didn't know about faith. Um, most of them couldn't tell me why Jesus died. Uh, their understanding of who Jesus is was really off at times, too. One of my friends I remember... I was talking to him about who Jesus was, and he, he told me, he thought that Jesus was just an ordinary person who became the Son of God. So even their Christology was a little bit out of whack. So that was really kind of discouraging and a bit alarming for me at that point when I, when I began to realize, you know, here we have, it was like every village there was a church. These people were highly Christianized. Uh, they, they the gospel had gone out elsewhere for sure, um, and yet it seemed like a lot of them didn't know the gospel. Um, Now, the fact of the matter is, we know what Preacher Jim, the original missionary, preached to them. We know what he believed. We know that because he wrote a journal, he wrote letters to people, um, and then, likewise, his fellow workers did the same thing, and they had children and grandchildren, Their their children and grandchildren preserved those letters and journals. Some of them wrote biographies about these people. So we know what they believed. Uh, No one can come and say to me, "Well, if if the Sandal people believe are saying this or that or another thing, that must have been what Preacher Jim said originally." That's nonsense. I don't. I I know what they're saying now, but it is not the same as what Preacher Jim said. Something uh, has really uh, gone wrong, and it has somehow changed. And I think, in some ways, that reflects what we do see at certain times um, in early church history, even even in some churches and in some places, only generations after the apostles. We know what the apostles preached, and only a few generations later. We do at times see pockets of Christianity where they don't seem to know what the apostles preached. They seem what they got Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 1. This is, um, this is the two verses I want us to keep our thoughts on, and as we look at today's um, document that we're going to get into here, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, this is Paul's letter to Timothy, is probably one of his last, letters, if not his last letter, and indeed he's, uh, he's giving Timothy some final exhortations, in verses, first, uh, chapter 1, 13 and 14, he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That was 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14 for those who still trying to In 1873, there was an Eastern Orthodox priest who was now in uh, what's now modern-day Turkey, and he discovered a compiled set of manuscripts in a monastery, a really old monastery. And this set of manuscripts was dated to the 11th century AD, and it contained copies of several ancient writings. Many of them were very famous, and we touched on some of them. The ancient writings it included Um, Were this manuscript, this compilation included, were 1st and 2nd Clement. We touched on that a little bit last time, 1st Clement especially. Uh, It also included the Epistle of Barnabas, which we might uh, get to later. We'll see if we uh, do come to that. Uh, The Epistles of Ignatius, which we will also get to later. And it also included this 11th century manuscript, included an ancient writing that had up to that time been completely lost to antiquity. Um, that writing the title of it is the teaching of the Lord through the apostles to the nations. More commonly, it's, it's called just the short of the teaching, or you've probably heard of it very often as what it's known in Greek as, and that is the Didache. So that's D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. Now, the church and uh, I think the historians had kind of known. I'm going know to turn this off again, so it's not too But um, the church had kind of known. Uh, and historians have known for a long time that um, uh, this document existed. There had been hints about it. Um, there had been places in, in some old church documents where it had been alluded to, maybe even quoted and, and referred to. Um, not a lot, but there were some. Probably the most famous example comes from our uh, great historian, Eusebius, who we've been uh, consulting frequently um, so I'll just go ahead and read his quote this was in an early part of his work, the, the church history, um, where he he first kind of laid out Eusebius listed out the canonical books of the New Testament and then after he listed the canonical books of the New Testament, he then says this quote, among the spurious books are the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd, the Revelation of Peter, the alleged Epistle of Barnabas, and then he says the so called teachings of the apostles. So many historians, and I think quite rightly, believe that when he said the teachings of the apostles, he was referring specifically to this document. So um, and I think it's a good chance. Um, basically, there it is. We had this document, which we kind of knew about, but for almost a millennium, a good long time, the church didn't know what happened to it, it just wasn't around. It had been known about, but had been lost. Um, it's a really, uh, so it was exciting in 1873, I guess you could say, when when we sort of rediscovered this. One, it was it was, um, it was was ancient and had been lost, uh, and two, it's really old. It's one of the oldest documents after the New Testament itself. Um, well, or most scholars would argue that. The reality is it's, it's really difficult to date. Um, there are people, there are some guys who put it as early as 50 AD. They say, oh, this thing was written in the middle of the first century, and then there are guys who put it as late as the fourth century. Those extreme ends, I think, are both stretched, um, and uh, probably the minority of guys, uh, minority of scholars would line up at either one of those ends. I think the majority uh, consensus would probably put this document either at the late. Uh, toward the end of the first century or toward the beginning of the second century. So this document maybe is about, as old, about the same time that first Clement, which we touched on last time, uh, it might be from that same time period. Anyways, regardless of um, whether this, whatever time period this document is from, um, I think it does contain some valuable information for us and probably some important lessons as well. So uh, before we get into those, however, I think it's probably be good just to kind of take a look at the contents real quick. What does this document say? So it's not a real long document. Um, my copy in English, I think, is less than 10 pages. It's a pretty short and pretty simple document. Uh, the Denike opens up by saying there are two ways One of life and one of death. And there is much difference between the two ways. And After it says that, it goes on to basically lay out a set of commandments, ways of behavior that Christians should observe. And at the same time, uh, after that, it goes on to list sins that Christians should shun. In the opening section, um, just to give you some examples, it, uh, it, it has a lot of the words of Christ. I'll just read a few things here. You can instantly recognize this. Let me see what's a good place to start here. Uh, the, the Didache says, Now the teaching of these words is this Bless those who curse you, and pray for your enemies, but fast for those who persecute you. And then a little further down, um, let's see. If anyone compels you to go one mile, go with him two. If anyone takes your garment, give him also your tunic. If someone takes from you what is yours, do not deliver it back. So again, that's uh, the opening part of the Didache. Um, after, uh, uh, doing that, it, uh, goes on to some prohibitions. Um, a lot of these prohibitions you may recognize as well. They come out of the old Testament. Uh, second portion of the decay reads now the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not sodomize your children, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal. You shall not practice magic, you shall not make potions, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill a child after it has been born. You shall (coughs) not desire that which belongs to your neighbor, and so on. Um, That's uh, the first part where the Didache is laying out the way, uh, what it says is the way of life. And then very briefly, in in kind of the middle of, of the document, the Didache then Lays out what it calls the way of death. Uh, just read a little from that real quick. Now, the way of death is this. First of all, it's evil and filled with a curse murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, divination, sorceries, robberies, false testimonies, hypocrisies, duplicities, guile, arrogance, malice, pride, and on and on. It makes a pretty long list there. It's pretty brief um, when it deals with the way of death. After it's dealt with that, the rest—it's uh, about the, the second half of this document. Then goes on to deal with um, what would probably be best uh, understood as church practice and polity. It deals with baptism. It uh, takes it gives you some gives us some instructions on fasting and prayer, on uh, do, uh, performing or, or practicing the Lord's Supper giving thanks, uh, gives us some liturgy, uh, some liturgical prayers, you could say. Also gives some instructions on how to treat visiting teachers, a prophet or an apostle or a teacher, uh, his his itinerant comes and visits the church, how to um, respond to them. It gives some instructions on church gathering, um, on deacons and elders as well. And then finally, at the very end, of the dedicate, it uh, gives an eschatological warning. Basically warns the church, the church's fame. Uh, the end times are coming. Uh, it says in the last days, quote, in the last days prophets and corruptors will mul- corruptors will multiply, and the sheep will be turned into wolves. It tells us that uh, there'll be the deceiver of the world who will be revealed. Um, he's gonna perform signs and wonders, and then there's gonna be a fiery test on all of all the world. Um, and then finally, the Lord will come with the sound of a trumpet. There'll be a resurrection of the saints only, and, um, and that would be the end. By the way, just a side note, when he says it's just the saints who get resurrected, that probably suggests um, he's Achilles, or premillennial, uh, if you remember us having that class before. So, which would also kind of suggest for an earlier date, rather than a, something as late like as the fourth century. So, but that's you know, just an idea. Um... So that's it, more or less in a nutshell. If you guys want to read it, it's out there. I don't, um, one of these books I think is in the bibliography, but you can find it online too. You just type it in there's going to be uh, copies of this um, pretty much all over the place. Any questions? I have to know. Is there like Catholics or any sort of other? the uh, denominations that are using it? Or not, maybe not the question. I don't know. I don't know that. Um, it's, uh, well, after it was rediscovered, I know uh, supposedly it's been included in a lot of what are called anthologies of the um, church fathers, which is where people compile all the, I the, think it's the, the, we call the apostolic fathers, those anthologies. So the earliest documents right after the time of the Apostles. Usually the decay is now included in those. So, for example, the book I have here, that has the decay um, And I think since the end of the 19th century, that's been pretty common now to include it. Um, I don't know if there's any, whether it's Eastern Orthodox Church or Catholic Church or any sect or denomination that considers this really valuable. I would suspect the Catholic Church does not consider it like... Um, an authority, per se, but just a valuable uh, piece of um, church history, as we would probably also consider it. So, I can't say too much about that information. Alright, another thing just uh, about the contents of this as well, uh, the style. Um, The style of the Didache is pretty interesting as well. It seems to reflect a lot of different things that we're familiar with. In the beginning, when we see the commands of Christ, we of course hear echoes of the gospel uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, In all the you shalls and you shall nots, you can definitely see the influence of the the mosaic wall there. Um, It also kind of reflects Proverbs a little bit. There's some places here where there's a section where it uh, says a whole bunch of uh, my child, um, kind of in repetition. Sounds a lot like the Proverbs. Listen to this my child. Do not be a soothsayer. Uh, my child, do not be a grumbler. My child, do not be a liar. Uh, my child, the one who speaks to you the word of God, you shall remember. And on and It really sounds like the Proverbs if you if you pay attention to that. Um, it also sounds a little bit Levitical at times. When it deals with baptism, it's very specific in, in how you should baptize somebody. Uh, here, here's an example. Now concerning baptism, baptize in this way after you have already said these things, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you do not have living water, baptize in other water. I don't know what living water is. (laughs) Physically living water. Um, And if you do not, if you are not able to baptize in cold water, maybe that's living water. Baptize in warm water. And if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's very, very specific. It sounds almost Levitical. If you read Leviticus or other parts of actually the the, the 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 first five books of the exodus to deuteronomy you'll find a lot of instructions from god and priesthood it's very very similar to that it's very specific this is how you do it um and then it actually i would also say there are places as well where it also reflects all these um, especially when you read the eschatological parts it sounds like things that also, um, like, I think I read it already, for in the last days false prophets and corruptors were multiplied. Sounds very popular in much of the language after it as well. So. Uh, so what do we learn? Those are the contents. What do we learn from this? We have this church document that was lost. It was refound. Judging from the evidence, it's super old. Um, So the fact that it could possibly, some people have suggested, it is the oldest thing we have other than the New Testament scriptures themselves. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's definitely a pretty old document. So what do we make of it? What do we uh, now in in our time uh, make out of this? Uh, I think to answer that question, the first thing that we want to do is we want to consider what the Didache is and what the Didache is not. Um, One could possibly suppose and There are actually some people who have suggested that this document has apostolic authorship. And that's wrong. This document was not written by the apostles. Um, However, the fact that somebody gave it this title, quote, the teaching of the Lord to the twelve apostles, means that either whether that was the author who gave it the title or whether it was a later scribe, clearly that person or, or people believed that this was at least a synthesis or summary of apostolic teaching. And um, that's not entirely without merit either. It, you can kind of get the sense of that if you read this, you can see apostolic influence for sure. Um, apostolic influence, I would argue, leads through all over this. You see scriptures quoted. You see, well, um, as we just pointed out, all these different um uh, influences from the Gospels, from, from Paul, um, as well as Old Testament influence. So you can definitely understand why someone might think this could be a synthesis or some real of apostolic teaching. But in reality, I would argue strongly that there are good reasons for us to conclude that it is neither a synthesis of apostolic teaching, nor is it really a representation of early church um, practice or theology. Kevin Hill is the author of, uh, sorry, not the author. He's the editor of this book, uh, which has the copy I'm reading today of the Didache. Uh, I really appreciate what he said. He argued that, uh, quote, it's necessary not to extrapolate too much from this document. And the reason there's several reasons for that, a lot of scholars would agree with him. First of all, there's a lot of ambivalence among the, the uh, early church fathers toward the Didache. Uh, Eusebius, as you could see, he called it a spurious document. And I think that's probably echoed with some of the other fathers. The fact is, very rarely do we see them quote. There's a few places where they quote parts of the dedicate but um, they didn't rely on it a lot. Um, very rarely, uh, outside of Eusebius, I'm not sure that many, if any, referred to it by name. Um, and then, of course, the church lost it for some time. That means they weren't copying it and transmitting it. Proliferously as they did so many other documents. If they had thought it was important, extremely important, um, they would have. I don't think they would have let that happen. I think they would have uh, quoted it a great deal more. If in fact the church believed and had evidence to, to to support that this document had apostolic authorship, especially if it had a, a, apostolic authorship, or if it was somehow you know condensing of yeah. apostolic teaching and doctrine i think they would have thought it was very very important and um I mean, much to the contrary much like much like the scriptures and other important documents we didn't see them quoted in a whole lot so um so the the dedicate is not either apostolic nor is it representative of early church theology or the whole but it is anecdotal. Uh, It is obviously anecdotal. The one thing at least that we can take away is that this document represents uh, a particular church or sect in a particular place at some time, uh, either in the late first or early second century. Mm -hmm. And um, as such, it it can be valuable for us. I think it contains some encouragements, first of all. and especially where, where we do see that it does retain apostolic doctrine. It's, cru- it's true that there is apostolic doctrine in it. Um, but it also, I think, contains some warnings um, for us as well. And that's what I want to focus on today. First of all, what are the encouragements? Um, the first thing that I feel is encouraging is that in this document, we do get a more or less complete moral ethic uh, that does reflect... Holiness, holiness that was taught, holiness of living that was taught by the apostles. Um, it does reflect that more or less. Um, they understand, the dedicate understands what kinds of thought and behavior is right, what kinds of thought and behavior is evil, and it clearly and clearly delineates it too. The second thing that I think is also encouraging is uh, some of the really, actually, it's in indig- a place you might not expect it. It's, it's found in the liturgical prayers toward the, in the latter half of the of the document. It gives several liturgical prayers on um, well, it gives us the Lord's Prayer right out of Matthew six, for example. It also gives us some liturgical prayers for Thanksgiving and to say after communion. And interestingly enough, those have some of the best doctrine. In them. I assume that the dedicate probably got those prayers from some other sources and included them. But they have some of the best, those are the, were where some of the best doctrine is. It's got great uh, Christology in those prayers. There's um, the doc, the, uh, there's even hints that the allusions to the apostolic doctrine of salvation. And also some great doctrine on the future hope and the, the gathering of the church in this world. So those liturgical prayers are actually pretty encouraging, I think. So there is things, and then there's other things as well. Again, I encourage you guys to maybe take time and read it if you want to. It's not a, it's not a long read at all. Um, so there is a lot that I think is, is good and valuable in the document. Um, but where should we be warned, however? What is a warning in this document? There's a source, another source that I found really helpful um, when I was uh, preparing for this. It's uh, in the uh, late 1900s. I don't know if it was the first or if it was one of the first, but a late 1900s English publication of the Didache. So in 1873, they found that the Didache was in Koine Greek. Then they started, you know, Translating it into European languages. They translated it in America in the late into English, I think, in the in the might have been eighteen eighties or something. So one of some of those one of those early publications had an introductory commentary by a professor. His name was MB Riddle, a Doctor of Divinity. Um, I really enjoyed that commentary. I thought it was he had a lot of good stuff to say. I don't know much about the guy at all. I tried to find some things, but then I was digressing, so um, but his actual commentary on the Didache was, was pretty helpful. Here's just one thing that I think kind of uh, sort of packages it for me sums it up. He says this this is uh, Professor Riddle's uh, writing he says, it's simplicity the dedicate simplicity almost amounting to childishness points to the sub-apostolic age during which Christianity manifested this characteristic by sub-apostolic age Riddle is referring to that time period right after or right about the time when the, the apostles were dying out or at, right after that so um and i think uh that's i really agree with him on that observation at least we, we did it. there is a simplicity in this that would insist to me One, it's one more piece of evidence that insists to me this is not by the apostles um, when we read the apostles doctrine it's it's profound and elegant um It's simple, but not simplistic, if you understand what I mean by that. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is an example. He's perhaps one of the most traditionally Jewish, and and the Didache is very Jewish in influence, Um, but but James is one of the most traditionally Jewish apostles, and even so, if we read his epistle, we can see how well and elegantly he explains that faith in our Lord, born out through love, produces righteous living in the believer. When we read the Didache, that doctrine is largely missing. It's almost not there at all. The first half of the Didache reads uh, as though, it comes across as extremely moralistic, simplistically moralistic, perhaps at best. And at worst, it comes out, off at times even as being oddly legalistic. Uh, there's a lot of, again, you've heard me read, read them. You've, there's the commands of Christ, uh, which of course are all good, Um, The you shalls and the you shall nots, but there's no foundation of faith. There's no mention of the work of Christ really in this document. The slightest allusion in those liturgical prayers, but otherwise you don't find it. It seems to be a moralistic moralistic code for living and little more, unfortunately. As I said, it at times even becomes highly legalistic. One of the things, one of the reasons I started by introducing the Sandal people to you this because when I read the Didache, I remembered them, um, and this is what actually brought it to my mind. I remember one of my good Sandal people friends. He he told me one time, real Christians go to church five days out of the week. Um, I don't know if that's convicting or not, but uh, that is kind of their approach to Christian living. This is what the dedicate says about fasting. Listen to uh, how this starts here. Fasting. It says, but do not let your fast be with the hypocrites. That actually sounds good to start, right? Sounds like something Jesus would say. He said, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, right? But then it goes on. Don't be like the hypocrites when you fast, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. But you fast on the fourth and sixth day. In other words, brother or sister, if you're fasting on Monday or Thursday, you're in. But if you fast on, I guess that'd be Wednesday or Friday, well then you're on straight and narrow, right? So things like that, and I, that's where I agree with Riddle when he says at times it seems just you know, simplistic. The same thing uh, with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a wonderful model for prayer. Um, but after it gives us, after the Dedicate quotes the Lord's Prayer, it says, Pray like this three times a day. Uh, almost as like a doctor you know, prescribing a pill. Um, so, what do we learn then from the Dedicate? I know I'm being especially critical of it. Um, I think there's this that we can take away as a warning, at least. And that is that it's definitely possible, what we learn is that it is definitely possible for a Christian church to. Uh, retain the imprint of apostolic influence and we can see that it's reflected in the words the traditions the values Um, the words of the apostles are in fact in the style of of christ as well it's possible for a church to uh retain the imprint of apostolic influence and at the same time stray away from the life-giving essence of the gospel that the apostles preached so the dedicate, in conclusion, it's not representative of the church in its time, but it is representative of one way that a church at any time can uh, decline, a way that a church, uh, many churches have done throughout history. Our passage today in 2 Timothy, I think, was really uh, evidence from Paul of what he was trying to uh, warn the church against and get the church to avoid. Let's go back to Timothy if the Bible version. He tells us in Timothy 2. I'm sorry, Timothy 1, 13, he's telling Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words. The pattern of sound words. In other words, he's telling Timothy to hold true to the teaching. This is the whole theme, really, of Paul's last letter to Timothy. Uh, We can see it in in the following text, um, in chapters 2, 3, and 2, 2. Paul says again, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses commit these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. In chapter 3 he goes on, in chapter 3 verse 10 he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. And then verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them. And then of course comes uh, 3, 15, and 16 famous passages on uh, the nature of scripture. Paul is er, yeah, Paul is basically claiming that what he's taught Timothy is scripture he says, uh, in 14, but you must, or 15, he says, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's proper for doctrine for proof for correction for instruction in righteousness. There's a man among the standing room who's a friend of mine. I'm going to call him Pastor Jed. And um, he was a pastor who was in charge of overseeing the, probably a whole bunch, handful of different churches, not just one village, but there was a series of villages that he was responsible for. And um, Jed and I, I guess we were friends, we hung out together. Unfortunately, we didn't have great communication. Um, I didn't speak the same old people's language at all, and he he only spoke the trade language um, uh, poorly. He ap- appeared to really understand it well, though, um, which is really common, actually, among you know, people just like that. So, um, but anyways, there was a a week uh, where I was up in one of the villages, and I was at the church, and they're having a service, and um, he was there, I was there, and he asked me to get up and share. So, um, knowing what I knew at that time, I got up and I preached the gospel. Uh, I think, if I recall correctly, I believe I preached from Galatians, but preached the gospel of faith, um, on the fruits of the spirit. And as I preached, I remember Pastor Jed was sitting in the front row. And I feel like nobody else really had much response. People just kind of sat there and listened. But Pastor Jed sat there, and as I was speaking, he began to smile and and nod his head. You know, just encouraging me, and uh, he seemed to really, really agree with it. And that was a huge encouragement to me that time, because up to that time, I remember feeling like these people have completely lost the gospel. But I realized what had happened is... um, Yes, many of them had, perhaps, hmm. but the, the encouraging thing is God still had his Timothy's there. He still had his guys who had done like Paul said and had kept the good thing that was entrusted to them. And I, I still always wonder, I think, about um, you know, just how good our communication was over the language barrier that day, but um, uh, that was actually just the beginning of a lot of such encouragement. Um, God does preserve at times a remnant, at times a, uh, a multitude of people who are faithful to the teaching of Christ and his apostles. Um, after that time, I met others, uh, some of them pastors, some of them not, among the Sandal people who, again and again, just gave good, strong testimonies of faith in the gospel. Eventually met guys who came from uh, other villages still even further um, uh, north of that area. Uh, who were missionaries and pastors and preachers who were preaching accurately and faithfully uh, the gospel. Um, and I think all that, I think that is a, again analogous to what we see at times in the course of church history. There will be times when the church as a whole or, or largely um, follows the gospel. And there will be times where much of the church is falling away, but you have your favorite men who stick to it. Last week we dug <coughs> event. Uh, we we learned a bit about him. I think he likewise bore the evidence of a faithful preacher and a faithful elder in the church where he was at Rome at his time. So I'm just going to close today. I didn't read this quote by him last time, but it's one of his best ones. So I'm going to close today with this uh, quote by Clement um, reaffirming the gospel that we believe, not necessarily expressed well in detail. Clement says, "And so we, who by his will have been called in Christ Jesus." Are not made righteous by ourselves, but by our wisdom, or understanding, or reverence, or the deeds we have done with a pious heart, but through faith, which by which Almighty God has justified all men from the beginning of the world. To Him be glory and forever and ever. Amen. That's